the podcast for news and views on robotics. Welcome to episode number 175 of the Robots Podcast. My name is Jana and today we will learn how robots could revolutionize the way we learn. But first, as always, let's catch up on the news with Christine. Thank you, Jana. On January 13th, the European Union announced awards for funding from Horizon 2020 or H2020. The H2020 is a follow-up to the European Union's 7th Framework Programme for Research and includes over 100 collaborative robotics projects. A major focus for the H2020 is agriculture. Two agriculture-related projects are Flourish and Sweeper, which, over a few years, will receive 3.5 million and 4.0 million euros, respectively. Flourish seeks to advance sustainable farming and increase crop yield by partnering an autonomous multicopter with an unmanned ground vehicle. Collectively, the two vehicles will be able to survey a field from the air, perform targeted intervention on the ground, and provide detailed information for decision support. The other project, Sweeper, seeks to address the declining number of skilled workers willing to labor in harsh greenhouse environments. They will do so by constructing a robotic arm to harvest fruit. An investigation is underway to determine the origin of this commercially available device, motive, and to identify suspects, said Secret Service spokesman Brian Leary after a small drone crashed into the White House South Lawn before dawn on January 26. The New York Times reported that the drone belonged to a government employee who lost control of the drone while flying it for recreational purposes. Officials said that the drone was too small and flying too low to be detected by radar. Brian Hearing, a founder of Drone Shield LLC, which makes drone detection systems for prisons and nuclear facilities, said, Radar systems are effectively useless for catching such small drones. If the systems were said to be sensitive enough to detect the drones, they would also detect every bird or swaying tree. However, he said, technology is available to jam the signals of an approaching drone. For more information on robots in agriculture and drone regulations, visit robohub.org. Professor Riccardo Cassinis from the University of Brescia in Italy is director of the Advanced Robotics Laboratory. His research team does work in several robot-related research topics, including robot programming languages, sensors and vision systems, as well as surveillance and mobile autonomous robots. Our interviewer Aldro spoke to Ricardo about having children from primary school through to university access and control robots remotely to learn subjects such as programming, geography, and foreign languages. Hi, welcome to Robots Podcast. Hi. Can you introduce yourself? My name is Ricardo Cassinis, and I'm an associate professor of robotics at the University of Brescia in Italy, northern Italy. Uh, I have been working on robots since 
a longer time that, um, than I wish to, to recall. <laughs> That's more than 35 years. And uh, um, since a couple of years, uh, my interests have moved towards the field of educational robotics. Um, in this field, we, are, uh, we have started a research program that has to do with uh, uh, mainly with remotely controllable labs uh, that will allow uh, children of ages, uh, ages ranging from 6 to about 18 years to uh, learn uh, robotics concepts and much more than this uh, using real robots that are not at their place. Mm -hmm. This is the main idea of our, of our project. What kind of subjects can be taught with robotics, do you believe? Uh, I think the range is limited only by the fantasy of teachers. Uh, the traditional uh, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics uh, uh, subjects, of course, but there is much more to this, especially for younger people. Um, I, I might mention geography, for instance, or geometry, or even foreign languages, or uh, um, simpler concepts uh, such as topology uh, that anyway... Uh, go into the instruction of, of, of younger um, boys and girls. Can you give me an example of how a robot would be used for, uh, for example, teaching foreign languages? Um, you may have uh, um, a robot that moves in an environment that is full of uh, uh, drawings of objects and the corresponding words. And uh, you may ask uh, children to program the robot in such a way that the robot will move from an object to the corresponding noun, uh, which is placed elsewhere in the world. Mm -hmm. This is just the first example that came to my mind. I never actually thought about it, but I saw many of these. Uh, uh, some are already available uh, on the market, these mats that carry different subjects, different drawings, and are especially good for children of the first two or three years of the elementary school. Mm -hmm. So the first two or three years, would that be children? How old would they be at uh, that time? Uh, say six, maybe even five mm -hmm. uh, to eight. Have you actually brought in robots to teach children of these ages? How do they respond? In an incredible way. Uh, I... I I'll repeat what a teacher told me after one of these experimental sessions. Uh, at the end of the lesson, uh, she said, well, normally at this time, children are already uh, ready to go with their uh, overcoats on and their bags packed. We were unable to move them from the, from the lab. They were really enthusiastic. But this is true in general. When you uh, add something practical, and especially if this is a, a robot, children are always incredibly uh, interested in what they are doing, and uh, it's even uh, hard sometimes to remove them from the robots. Now, can you tell me a bit about the different ways of bringing robots to education, and then how you have decided uh, what the best platform for the majority of schools will be? Yes, uh, although I'm not completely sure. I have no uh, actual data uh, that show that my idea is better than the others. But traditionally, uh, robots are introduced in schools by buying, uh, buying and giving uh, children kits, uh, such as the Lego kit, for instance, uh, kits that allow building robots and programming them and playing with them. Um, this 
surely is the best way to use robots, but it has two drawbacks. The first one is that robots, these robots are quite expensive, and if, especially in small schools, they would be not fully used because they can only be used for some hours a week. The second problem is that a teacher who is given a bunch of Lego pieces has first to learn how to use them. And this, this requires some uh, uh, instruction that uh, in many situations uh, cannot be afforded. So the idea was to move towards something that is more structured and that doesn't require such a uh, large investment. And therefore the idea of having a remote laboratory which is already equipped, which is built by people who know exactly what is needed and, uh, um, and at the same time can be used for uh, teaching teachers uh, how to use it uh, remotely so that they don't have to move, they don't have to take classes out of their uh, living place. Um, it seems quite a good idea and seems to have uh, lots of advantages. Uh, this is why we moved uh, uh, towards this direction. Mm -hmm. The third option is uh, a virtual, a fully virtual lab, which is a, a simulator. Mm, this also could work well if uh, there weren't the problem that uh, children uh, very quickly get bored of purely simulated things. This was demonstrated by some experiments. Uh, they are too intelligent and too smart to uh, enjoy really uh, fully simulated things. They, they prefer to know that at least somewhere in the world there is a uh, real thing they are moving, they are programming, and they are using, even if they cannot see it directly. How will instructors fit into this? How will they be expected to participate and facilitate the learning? I don't mean that this is an optimal solution for every country, every school system. Uh, the way we are uh, dealing with it was tailored uh, to our school system, and uh, in this case, I think that it's a good idea. The main point is that uh, instructors, when they are told, um, any, uh, at almost any level, when they are told, well, you should introduce robotics in your teaching class because there is, uh, they say, yes, I would like to do, but I don't know how to do it. So providing a tool that can be uh, readily used is the winning point in my opinion. And what kind of robots would be in these environments? Well, this, um, I think the answer is quite easy at the lower levels of education, mobile robots, because they are much more enjoyable, many more things and games, and they can be played with uh, in more sat satisfying ways for the children. Uh, then, as you move towards higher levels, uh, uh, manipulators can only be uh, can also be used, uh, and can become interesting because uh, you can program them in a way which is more similar to the programming of uh, uh, computers. And if the aim is to give a good knowledge of computer programming, probably a, uh, a manipulator uh, has some advantages. But at the first levels of education, I would 
I would say, mobile robots. Uh, at this point of technology, I think that wheeled robots are still winning. Mm-hmm. Uh, humanoid robots would be nice, but they have, well, they are too expensive mm-hmm. uh, and uh, they have still too many uh, problems related to their structure that are not interesting to the students. But a robot that keeps falling, for instance, is, uh, is, is not something you can rely on to teach programming. Mm-hmm. So I'd say wheeled, wheeled mobile robots. Simple, not sophisticated, with some sensors based on different physical concepts uh, so that you can also introduce physics in the teaching and uh, uh, with a programming uh, system that can be um, readily understood by children. Mm-hmm. Now how can you take advantage of having a remote lo- location but then also using some sort of virtual elements to it, uh, for example, backgrounds? This, or... this is the uh, key idea of the work we are carrying on. Uh, the problem is that uh, most of the examples uh, that uh, you, you can use uh, uh, teaching children uh, how to program robots or how to use robots uh, require some kind of environment. Uh, so you cannot, uh, either you change it manually, but this requires somebody at the remote lab to, to change things, or you, you must have uh, some automatic means of doing it. Um, the first idea was to have a mechanical system that simply switched back, backgrounds, but this was cumbersome and, and not really very feasible. Uh, so we thought that resorting to uh, virtual reality techniques that are readily available would help solving the problem. Um, what we are doing now, and this also comes from some experiments we had done, um, children like very much to have their robots uh, move in different environments and also to uh, dress their robots in different ways. Uh, so we tried to do the same thing uh, with our machine, uh, introducing virtual backgrounds where the real robot moves and or uh, introducing a uh, virtual dress of the robot, which is just uh, something that covers the robot with a different drawing, moving either in the real or in the uh, virtual environment. We can have all the combinations of these uh, uh, two factors. And this allows moving the robot from, uh, uh, say, a... um, grass field uh, with flowers for the smallest kids to a, a track with obstacles and, uh, and uh, goals to reach uh, and the path to, to program for the uh, smarter, uh, mm-hmm. older, the older children. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. And then uh, can you talk a bit about imperative versus reactive robots and how they may be used for <clears throat> education? Uh, first, can you start by defining imperative and reactive? Imperative programming is what we normally do with computers. We uh, have a problem, we uh, find an algorithm that solves the problem, and we instruct the computer or the robot to do a series of actions to reach the goal. Uh, Everything is planned in advance, or if this cannot be done, at least we plan how sensors should be used to modify the program. This is what we do all the time when we program uh, computers. Uh, On the other hand, reactive programming is uh, uh, 
as far as, as uh, mobile robots are concerned, um, a way of programming the robot so that it knows how to behave if things happen or if they don't happen. And the global behavior of the robot is just the sum of these uh, uh, partial behaviors. This is what our mom uh, does when she instructs us uh, to go out, but beware of, the, beware of this and don't run uh, while crossing the street and don't talk to unknown people. <laughs> okay. Um, the, um, the point is that uh, mobile robots cannot be programmed uh, in uh, an imperative way unless they live in a very simple and well-known environment. Uh, I wouldn't be able to program, to write a program to get a robot, to have a robot get a cup of coffee, for instance, from the other room because I'm missing too much information. Uh, what I could do is write a reactive program that says, okay, if you see a cup of coffee, go towards it. Uh, but if there is an obstacle, try to run around it. And this is the, uh, the idea. Um, as far as robots are concerned, both ways of programming are important, and uh, uh, people should know well uh, when to use um, imperative and when to use uh, reactive programming. Uh, by the way, programming a mobile robot is not a solved task, so we, we can really do it only in a very simple environment. Mm -hmm. But so this is enough for our experiment. Okay, so how does this relate to uh, robots for education? Is it in the decision of which robots are used and how the pe the children are interacting with them and if they are programming them to get to give them the ability to make a reactive robot or one that uh, is imperatively controlled? I think that the important point is that uh, children should become aware of the fact that you cannot plan actions uh, in an uncertain environment. Uh, this is the key point. Mm -hmm. And this can be very easily shown with mobile robots. Uh, for instance, if you try to program a robot to move one meter straight and then turn 90 degrees and then uh, move another meter straight and repeat this for four times, the robot should go back to the starting point after uh, running uh, uh, square. Uh, you can very easily show that a real robot will never do this because the wheels slip, because there are errors in the measurement of their speed, etc. Um, so this is why uh, I, uh, both ways of programming should be used. Mm -hmm. For the simplest cases, instead, imperative programming uh, uh, is useful and can be used. Can you tell me about how you've implemented the idea of having robotics in education, specifically a remote environment, so far? Well, uh, so far, well, mm, the idea of uh, introducing robots in education is not mine, of course, and uh, it has been pursued for a f quite a number of years now. Um, the idea of uh, uh, building this lab, uh, at least in my country, uh, came to a research group of Siena University, but their aim was different. They were aiming to uh, university uh, students or at least high, level, high school level uh, students. Um, 
some experiences that had been done instead with uh, uh, younger children uh, gave me the idea of moving towards this sector. So we started this project that, by the way, has very small financing because uh, so far it has only been financed internally by our university and started cooperating uh, on a uh, free will basis with a number of schools who offered uh, uh, their uh, children for experiments, experimentation and uh, for, with some, also with some high schools that offer the service of debugging the system and of sub um, suggesting uh, uh, improvements and uh, variations. Um, and so the, the whole project uh, so far was run uh, um, by our university in cooperation with a um, number of schools uh, uh, scattered around Italy. And so what is the project? Uh, so far we have defined a, a milestone that is uh, uh, the second version of the system that will offer the four levels uh, I showed yesterday in my talk uh, that is... Uh, um, possibility of observing the lab without the capability of doing anything, uh, the simulation of a commercially available robot that uh, works very well uh, for children up to nine years. Uh, its commercial name is Bebot, and uh, uh, it's a sort of a, a physical implementation of the very famous uh, uh, logo turtle that was designed by Seymour Paper, uh, papered uh, uh, some more than 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a bit about what it does, Bebot? Uh, Bebot uh, Be is a, a very nice uh, B-shaped uh, little machine that works, uh, that lives in a world made of squares, adjacent squares, uh, 15 centimeters uh, mm -hmm. is their dimension, and that can only understand uh, five commands. It can go forward one square, backwards one square, uh, turn right 90 degrees or turn left 90 degrees or pose and make a sound. Uh, a sequence uh, of such movements uh, uh, will, uh, an appropriate sequence of such movements will allow the robot to go anywhere on the, on the, uh, in its world uh, and uh, the sequence of movements can be programmed uh, by pressing uh, some buttons in the appropriate order. So it, this is something that children can very readily understand and master. But if you start, for instance, introducing obstacles, uh, things get, become less obvious. Uh, and uh, uh, this gives also an idea, although it cannot be programmed on this particular robot, that computer programs sometimes need to branch according to, to the situation. Uh, so this is the second level we can simulate. And we added the possibility of changing the words where the robot lives. This is important because uh, there are countless applications of this mm, simple machine uh, for teaching uh, uh, different subjects. Uh, at the third and fourth level, instead, we offer two ways of programming uh, the classical Lego uh, robot. Uh, one is a uh, language a C-like language uh, that has not been developed by, by us, uh, but is around, uh, has been around for, uh, I think, at least five years now. 
and the other one is the uh, original iconic programming uh, language that is offered by uh, Lego and that is sold together with the Lego kits. Um, so users can choose which level they want to to use and uh, write their programs. Uh, uh, additionally, uh, we have introduced the possibility of uh, in, um, adding some virtual obstacles and have the robot uh, behave uh, uh, if it uh, runs into these obstacles, behave as if it had really touched real obstacles. Mm -hmm. At this point, we will have something that can be used. Uh, it, mm, we also included uh, some uh, informational system, uh, I mean a forum that contains documentation, that contains tutorials, that can be used. This is also very important as a social uh, meeting point between teachers uh, and perhaps also between pupils, but uh, mostly between teachers. You mentioned that you've been doing this with the public school systems. What has the reaction been? Teachers tend to favor this because they find a ready-to-use environment. They don't have to bother with all the uh, organizing and even the bureaucratical burden of uh, uh, ordering uh, uh, materials to buy them. Uh, one thing we were very aware of is that we should only use uh, uh, readily available equipment uh, in schools. And actually what we need is just an internet connection, not even a too fast one, and, uh, and a browser. Nothing else is required on the uh, school's side. Teachers are happy to have this tool because it uh, uh, relieves them from, a lot, from, from many problems. Children are extremely interested. Uh, of course, as I said at the beginning, it would be uh, better for them to provide, to provide them with real robots. Um, but if this is not possible, I think that this is the second option that comes uh, that becomes available. Uh, providing children with this makes them very happy to have something different where they are able to learn by solving problem. Actually, uh, when, they, um, when robots are involved, uh, the uh, main activity is always a problem-solving activity. Learning comes as a sort of side effect. Of, uh, of this problem-solving activity, which is not true in traditional uh, teaching, mm -hmm. where the teacher speaks and the children listen. And then they repeat, yeah. Yeah, and then they repeat. Uh, so what major challenges have you had in getting where you are now, and what have you learned from them? That things are always more difficult than they seem to. So far, we were actually unable to perform experiments leaving the uh, remote lab totally unattended. Each time we tried this, something odd happened and required some of my students run down to the lab and uh, uh, disentangle robots. Or uh... So one thing we are learning is that things should be made in such a way that almost nothing uh, unexpected can happen. 
uh, at some point I was even thinking of introducing a manipulator uh, for the sole purpose of disentangling robots and putting them in their starting positions. Now we have resorted to a more uh, technological system that uh, uses a vision system to detect the position of robots so that uh, they become totally independent from their odometry and uh, uh, that instructs robots to uh, go back to their starting position when mm -hmm. anything funny happens. Um, I think this was the, the main uh, lesson I've learned uh, from this. What is the timeline you hope for implementing these robots, these uh, remote locations in education in your school systems and perhaps beyond? Uh, this question well, this question should be asked to uh, different people, probably. Uh, my idea is that uh, a usable version of the system could be ready in uh, two to three years from now. Uh, when this will be introduced in schools is something I, will, uh, I am unable to foresee now. Uh, probably it will take some five, at least five years uh, just to... Uh, get it into the teachers' minds. Uh, most of them are, uh, you know, the problem is that most of them are eager to learn something new, and so they look very favorably uh, to this, uh, this and other innovations. But they have no time for learning them. So there is always a, uh, a problem between uh, what they would like to do and what they can do, and the money the government can afford spending for such a, uh, uh, an instruction. Um, the, the school system in Italy is almost totally uh, funded by the government, so we are, we are working with the public schools. And wrapping up, what do you believe is the future of robotics? You see, when you come to conferences such as this one, you uh, see um, incredible uh, improvements on uh, specialized topics. We listened yesterday to a very interesting talk about the grasping capabilities of robots. Uh, when you look on the Internet, you will see wonderful robots that can dance, that can walk, that can do tons of different things. The problem is that there is no robot so far that can encompass all these capabilities. Uh, the true problem is that robots nowadays are either very specialized and do very well a single task, but this is not the idea of robot each, each one of us has, and or they uh, are quite dumb. I mean, uh, humanoid robots, for instance, are interesting, but so far most of them are just a gadget that can be used for some advertising or for, uh, but that don't have a real uh, usefulness. So the problem is uh, uh, how should we put these individual abilities together to have a robot that at the same time can play chess and can say, and master chess, and can say, uh, well, but I don't like chess. So my idea is that, uh, yes, um, robots will evolve, but they are evolving uh, slowlier than uh, 
most people think. Uh, I've been working in this field for uh, almost 40 years, and, well, take it as a joke, but uh, I always said that AI forecasts are always and have always been 20 years behind the forecast of 20 years before. That means that AI is not really moving very much towards uh, uh, usable applications. Most uh, advances in uh, computer science come from the increase of computing power. Moore's law is very real. And if we have, uh, uh, for instance, uh, voice understanding systems that, works n that work now and uh, that were not available even five years ago, uh, this is not a result of AI, it's much more a result of computing power. So you think that the future of robotics will be the integration of all these technologies eventually, although it is moving slowly? I think it has to be if we want to get something more, to get to something more intelligent and more usable. Mm -hmm. uh, so we have to move in this direction. Uh, how this can be done is uh, very difficult to say. And so far, um, I think that what, what we can do in the meantime is uh, just uh, um, enhance the capabilities of robots and uh, uh, start using them for what they can do. A um, vacuum cleaner robot is totally dumb, but is useful. So we should take advantage of this and use it. All right. Thank you. You're welcome. And that's the end of today's episode. As always, you can find out more information by visiting our website at robotspodcast.com. Join us again next time. We'll be back in two weeks. Until then, goodbye. Learning with Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics.